0: Me again? It's your last time you have to listen to me this morning. (laughs) It is my pleasure to introduce to you Peter Fass. Peter is the Deputy National Director with Bridges for Peace Canada, having returned with his family from volunteering with Bridges for Peace in Israel for over three years. Peter holds degrees from Prairie College, a BA in Biblical Studies and a BA in Intercultural Studies. He has completed a Master of Arts in Judeo-Christian Studies at Master's International University of Divinity. Peter, Peter teaches on subjects such as Hebraic roots, historical modern Israel, Christian anti-Semitism, and early church history. Peter is an accomplished author of two novels, and Peter is married to Diana. They have a son, Judah, and a brand new baby daughter named Naomi. Peter's going to be with us for the next four weeks, and can we please give him a warm welcome?
1: Thank you. Yeah, it is wonderful to be here. When my uh, little boy Judah was born, I couldn't stop smiling, and now that I have a little daughter, I got all choked up. So it, it's not as impressive as the big screen, but look, there she is. Can, here, for the people in the back... Okay. Can everybody see that? Okay, maybe I'll pass it on later. Okay. No, it is a blessing to be here. And um, I just want to quickly just say a few words about Bridges for Peace. Uh, we are a Christian organization. We're in eight countries around the world and our international office is in Jerusalem, Israel. And our, really our mandate is to bridge that gap between the church and the synagogue, between Christians and Jews, recognizing and realizing that for most of history, unfortunately, many Jewish people have been persecuted by uh, members of the church and by Christ followers in the name of, of Christ. So it's resulted in centuries of mistrust, suspicion, hurt, bitterness, uh, these kinds of things that often cloud uh, their vision or, or stereotypes of how they see us as Christians. And so it's a, it's a long, arduous journey, but we're bridging that gap, and it's an incredible thing. So... We do lots of education in the church. We take people to Israel, We uh, groups, we uh, offer volunteer opportunities to pray, to, to donate. But in Israel, we have many programs. Uh, just to highlight a few, we have a food program. So we feed about 22,000 people every month. Uh, we have a program that brings many Jewish people to Israel, many of them escaping anti-Semitism and hostilities, especially like in places like Ukraine. So we have uh, brought over almost 60,000 people. We have programs that help uh, people that have been affected by war and terror. We have school programs. We have home repair. We work with Holocaust survivors. It really is an amazing privilege to be part of the the kingdom, but to be uh, part of ministry, and, and we all are called to that. Ministry is not just for a select few. We are all called to that. So I love to encourage people to add Israel and subtract nothing. That doesn't mean we're an Israel-only club. Uh, we know God is a God of the nations, and He lays things on people's heart. but we want to see uh, Christians connecting to that Hebraic root and understanding the, the significance. And we're going to be, in the next four weeks, going through this uh, covenant and um, exploring covenant, this explosive word that's found uh, in the Scriptures, in, in, uh, in word, and in I, the idea and the context and the concept of it, covenant. And so today, I want to kind of have an introduction of what is covenant. And then over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic and the New Covenant. Um, And each has a theme. Uh, So when you can line up the Abrahamic, it's like faith. The Mosaic would be holiness. The Davidic is kingship. And the New Covenant is atonement. Yet all four are interconnected. And God reveals who he is and how we are called to respond through all four. All four, they're like their own covenants, but they're all connected at the same time. It is, it's quite remarkable. So when we look at covenant, because this is a, a thing that um, lots of people have different ideas. Um, they even develop full theologies about this. And, uh, but what is covenant? We have to address that. If you were just to ask maybe any one of you or just somebody on the street, what do you think of a covenant? They may say, well, a pact or an agreement, maybe a treaty, a promise or a pledge or a confederation, a marriage covenant or a union. These kinds of ideas. But we're going to look at the biblical context and the concept of this. In in a biblical context, in a Hebraic context, covenant is relationship. It is relationship through and through. So it, it can encompass, of course, it encompasses aspects of a pact or a promise. But it's more than that. Um, in the biblical sense. It's God reaching out to man. And in, in every case, because of course there's other promises. We see promises with Adam and Eve. We see a covenant or a promise with Noah. Um, God reaching out to man. He's invading history and he's reaching out to us. He's not just standing back watching this world spin out of control. He invades history. He invades our world and wants a relationship with us. So it's, it's more than just a promise. And this is a beautiful thing. When we look at covenant in the in the the scriptures, we are introduced with uh, some incredible realities. The covenant established with Abraham uh, brings forth a physical sign. This physical sign was the cutting away of flesh through circumcision to be marked as an obedient God follower. It comes at a cost. You don't just raise your hand and say, "Hey, you know, maybe that would be easier." Um, but it comes at a cost. You don't just say, I'm in. It came at a cost. It came at a price as a God follower. Even It's, it's an amazing thing because circumcision, of course, is practiced today, especially in the Jewish community. And the circumcision ceremony is the Brit Milah, the, the, the covenant, the sign of the covenant. It's identifying an individual as, I am part of this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am part of this. But co- God is in the midst of Covenant. God is in the midst of relationship with us. He's in the midst of it. And he alone is faithful. He alone is the only one who is faithful to perfectly keep it. We are not. We mess up all the time. And this, this truth, interestingly enough, is found um, through the, the Jewish interpretation of the very first word in the Bible. And it's not in, okay, in the beginning. The very first word of the, in the Bible is a word called Bershit which is translated as in the beginning. So this is the very first word in scriptures. And why this word? Why, why didn't the scriptures start with like a long time ago in a far, faraway galaxy? You know, or once upon a time, or, you know, at, at the beginning of time, the dawn of time. But no, it uses this word. And Jewish interpretation of this word has, brings forth a lot of wealth. First of all, we see two words combined into this word. So here's the word, Brit. For covenant. And then we see esh, fire. So there's, see, the t- you can kind of identify uh, the, the, the words in the midst of the very first word that scripture opens up with. So the idea, the reasoning behind this, the, the approach of this is a beautiful picture. First of all, when fire isn't contained, it's all-consuming. It can even be scary, okay? When fire isn't contained, it's it's all-consuming. When it's contained, when it's in a nice little fireplace, you can admire it. It's beautiful. It warms you. Well, a scriptural motif for God is fire. You mean, next week we'll talk about the Abrahamic covenant and, and Abraham saw in a vision God passed between the pieces as fire. We see this. So God, oftentimes this word is related to God or God's power. So God, in the, in the midst of covenant, that's what it's all about. So the Bible opens up, through a Jewish interpretation, the Bible opens up with the first word saying, God is in the midst of this relationship. He wants to be in the midst of this relationship with you and with I. So, right from the beginning, it was God's intention to reach out to humanity. Sin caused this gap. Sin corrupted things. It changed things. You can physically see it. Uh, this, this world suffers because of it. And God, his intention is to reach out to humanity, to us, and to you. Sin caused this gap, but God had a plan. And the plan is grace. This incredible, incredible truth. So this is the fabric of who God is. This is the fabric. And in the Hebrew word chesed, I don't know why my letter went all the way down there, but that's fine. I think that's my mistake. But the Hebrew word chesed is steadfast love. And this is one of the most important words that you can, all, like, that you can remember for the Bible. Everybody say that with me. Chesed. Okay, commit that to memory. There will be a test next week. Um, and we will go through the, the biblical Hebraic context of all of that. And every one of you will turn it into an essay. Um, Chesed is an amazing, powerful word. It's not just con- uh, you know, contained in just the Old Testament. It's through and through, Genesis to Revelation. And it's an amazing thing when we look at when God reveals his glory to Moses. See, often people say, oh, you know, God in the Old Testament, he's such, he's, you know, he's hard, he's difficult, he's a judge, he's, look what happens. But Jesus, you know, God in the New Testament, he's so loving and cuddly and all of this. And they also forget that in the New Testament, Jesus is pictured in Revelations as coming with wrath and a sword in his mouth. But we'll just set that aside, you know, he's meek and mild. And he's just kind of what I like to think of him being nice and cuddly. But what about this God of the Old Testament? Boy, he's, he's hard to connect with. Well, when God reveals his glory to Moses, this is an amazing thing. In Exodus 34, God reveals his, his glory to Moses, and this is how he introduces himself. Um, not so hard when you really picture this. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So that is how God, the Creator, the Ancient of Days, the Alpha and the Omega, this is how He introduces Himself to Moses. I am gracious, I am loving, I am slow to anger. I want to pardon. I want to forgive. Not so tough when we actually look at it. This is the heart of God. This is the fabric. He reveals his glory to Moses. And when we break down that, that whole structure of, of what he gives to, to Moses in his name, we get that God has compassion before a person sins. He has compassion after a person has sinned. He is mighty in compassion to give all creatures According to their need, He is merciful that humankind may not be in distress and gracious if humankind is already in distress. He is slow to anger and plenteous in kindness and truth, keeping kindness unto thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and pardoning. Now, one of my favorite parts of that is slow to anger. Can you imagine if God wasn't slow to anger? I mean, how many of us struggle? with being slow to anger at times. I know myself with a three-year-old. I'm tested daily. And a couple of days ago, I was trying to discipline him, and I was looking right at him, and I'm, Judah, you can't do this. And he looks at me, and he says, I'm a big brother. And I said, interesting. You know, that's an interesting rebuttal or argument, but I said, you know, yes, you are, but that's besides the point. You know, I'm, I'm struggling here being slow to anger. But God says he is slow to anger. The apostle John wrote in 1 John 4, 7 to 11... Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So a person who embodies chesed, steadfast love, is therefore a chassid. Okay? So we all want to be a chassid, someone who is faithful to the covenant and who goes above and beyond that which is normally required. To love God so completely, like this is like being sold out, to love God so completely that one will never forsake his service. For any reason. The Bible begins with chesed. And it ends with chesed. All 66 books. This is the heart of God. This is the, the identity of chesed. Of his fabric. Look at 2 Peter 3.9. That God is long suffering in love. Wishing none shall perish. He's not wishing that all should perish. You know he doesn't hold. that. He, he wants to, everyone to come to the knowledge of who he is. He wants to rescue everyone, no matter what standing or country or whatever you're a part of. He wants to rescue everyone. Now, English translations in our scriptures, in English translations in different versions, will translate that word, and you can look it up long suffering, uh, covenant, grace, love. Like they'll use these uh, different translations, but I think a closer, a closer translation is steadfast love to Chesed. Steadfast love is something which does not move. It's solid and unchanging. And in relation to us, this is unconditional, undeserved. It's not all about us. We didn't deserve this. What we deserved is death because of the wages of sin is death. That's what we have to pay. But it's undeserved love. So paired with steadfast love, this is the unique thing. It's God isn't just love. Some people like to really focus on that. And that's their argument for allowing, kind of justifying them to do anything they want. Well, God is love. Of course he would love me. I can do whatever I want. He's love. He's love. But paired with that, chesed, so if you were to kind of break it down, is undeserved love, steadfast love, but also righteous judgment. He can't be one without the other. You can't, he can't love righteously Unconditionally, if he will never judge. He must. He's perfect. So the focus and the foundation and the use of the word is God's unchanging and eternal covenant with Israel. When you look at chesed in scripture, it is paired over and over and over in context with his relationship with Israel. It's an amazing thing. Psalm 105, 1-11. to Look at that. Look at the whole chapter everlasting love, this everlasting covenant, the oath, the covenant he gave to Abraham and the oath he swore to Isaac and renewed to Jacob, an eternal everlasting covenant. But it also has a New Testament expression, right through all of the scriptures we also see not only Israel, we see chesed used with God, how he looks at nations or people, but it has a unique relationship with Israel. But in the New Testament we, we are introduced to um, a couple words. First of all, charis, grace. That would be the New Testament equivalent. Charis, grace, chesed. It's the exact same thing. See, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He doesn't say, oh, now I'm in New Testament times. i got to be more loving. You know, he's the same. He's constant. When they they were uh, translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, which was called the Septuagint, the word that was changed, uh, used was elios, mercy, or pity. And uh, this, though, is connected to also to agape, unconditional love. And this is the love, this is the word Jesus uses uh, when he reinstates Peter. Do you love me, Peter? Do you agape me? It's like, Peter, you don't deserve it, but I'm extending love to you. Will you accept that? So chesed is used 248 times in the Old Testament, in 241 verses. It's a very Hebrew thing. If, if they say one thing and then repeat it again and repeat it again, pay attention. Repetition? Well, they use this 248 times in 241 t- verses. We need to draw into that. We need to uh, pay attention to that. So in many of those cases, it's, it's related to Israel. In other cases, it's man, uh, God's attitude to man or man to man. A few examples. In Joel 2.13, God describes himself as being slow to anger. And the word chesed is used. Jonah says, you are a gracious and merciful God. Chesed. Nahum 1.3 presents the essence of chesed. He is both slow to anger and great in power. He will judge the wicked. He is merciful and a judge. I mean, it's uncomfortable at times to focus on the judgment side of God because we kind of feel like small. And we should, but we're gonna unpack that a little bit. Now, what's man's steadfast love like? You know, like we're, we're creating his image, we want to love. That's like part of our DNA, but unfortunately it's kind of marred, it's misdirected. So oftentimes we miss the mark, we always fall below that. So man's steadfast love is often conditional. It's limited, contradictory, it's hypocritical, it's weak, it's complicated. It changes, it's dimming, it's weary and so on and so forth. Yet God, God is unfathomable. We can't even measure it. It's it's eternal, it's unwavering. The word of the Lord is steadfast in its very nature. This steadfast love is is his fabric. It cannot be anything less. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we are so finite and when someone offends you, and does it again, and does it again, and does it again. Boy, the last thing on earth. I mean, somebody cuts us off and I, my hand goes on the horn, right? And I get sometimes bad thoughts, you know? It's hard. But God is constant. So God's loving kindness is that sure love which will not let Israel go, even if Israel cuts them off on the highway, right? So not all Israel's persistent waywardness could ever destroy it. Though Israel be faithless, yet God remains faithful still. This steady, persistent refusal of God to wash his hands of wayward Israel is the essential meaning of the Hebrew word chesed. And if you want to really picture it, Leviticus 26, 44, 45. I mean, Moses is talking to Israel, the children of Israel, and he says, you know, when you guys do bad, bad things will happen. And in this passage... He's talking as if they're in the nations already. Like, and they're in the nations because they've sinned. And God says, he reminds them. Yet when you're in the nations, I will not leave you to utter destruction. I will not abhor you to utter destruction. But I will remember my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. With your forefathers. And I will bring you back. They're in the nations because they did wicked. But he will not destroy them. He will remember his covenant. It's about the covenant he made. So in the whole of scriptures, we see God's steadfast covenant, uh, this love applying to two chosen parties. One, God's ongoing covenant with the nation and people of Israel and how it will one day reach its pivotal purpose of redemption before God as a people and nation when they turn back to him and two, the bride of Christ. You see, when God entered into that covenant with Abraham, that's not a free ticket of salvation. This was a covenant to his physical descendants, national Israel, chosen to stand out, to reflect who he is, but it was always about faith. Abraham, his faith was credited him as righteousness. It was, God has never changed. Circumcision didn't save anybody, yet it was a sign given to show the world and the people of Israel who he, who he is, the bride of Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? God's work with the church Israel is like a warning system of assurance for the church and us. Did you know that? So first of all, if God could love Israel so much to keep his word, never to reject them, to promise to restore them, then we can trust God will never reject us. This doesn't mean the absence of punishment and judgment when Israel rebels or us which we clearly see in the Scriptures. Often Christians will say, those, those stubborn, stiff-necked Israel, well, I, you know every single church I've ever been in my life has stubborn and stiff-necked people. In fact, I think it's more of a human condition than just Israel. But they're a warning system. Number two, though, so if God can love Israel so much and say these things and uphold it, that gives us assurance. However, if God could use language like everlasting covenant eternal promise you, the apple of my eye, all of this stuff, and then break his covenant with Israel, and then take his covenant and give it to the church, and say, I'm starting again, like some people teach. What does that do to who God is? What does that do to his word, his credibility, and his nature? We will explore that in later weeks. Israel is like a mirror for us showing God's faithfulness. When we look at Israel and God's promises... And response to them, we in turn look right back at ourselves and realize God's holiness, steadfast love, the need for discipline and correction when we sin, his faithfulness, his slow to anger nature, and the ultimate desire to restore and redeem us as he will Israel, his beloved. It's like, you know, when they say when you point at somebody, you got like three fingers pointing back at you? Remember that. Um, So when you look at Israel, if you want to know what God thinks of righteous behavior... And how he rewards it. Look at Israel in the scriptures. If you want to know what God thinks of proper worship, look at Israel and his acceptance and action. If you want to know what God thinks about legalistic worship, look at his words about it to Israel. If you want to know how God will judge outright rebellion, look at Israel's history and God's divine judgment. If you want to know how God honors obedience, look at Israel and how God rescued them from annihilation and threat over and over again, and how he prospered them, and so on. God is faithful both in judgment and mercy. He is constant. The church is called the bride of Christ. Israel is also called his bride and beloved, his elect, as well as the church. There is an intimate connection there. The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church, but there is a beautiful marriage between the two, and it points to God's Chesed, his great plan. So, this word chesed, its most powerful image is through God's relationship with Israel when we look at scriptures. So even through their waywardness, even through their rebellion and wickedness at times, God shows them loving kindness, mercy, and forgiveness. Even look at when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives weeping for the city. He's not saying, oh, you crazy, you know, I'm done with you. He says, oh, this city that kills the the prophets, I wish I could gather you like hens. Like, this is beautiful language. He's he's pouring his heart out. He's not like, I'm going to rain fire on you. No, he's, I wish I could gather you. Hear my voice. In the New Testament, we see a continuation of God's chesed for Israel and the nations. First of all, for Israel, here's his, his steadfast and faithfulness to Israel, He fulfills his word to Israel by sending the Messiah, who even through, even though he was rejected by Israel, it led to the birth of the church from a remnant of Israel. God's completed work and his continuation for the, the whole nations, all the nations that through this remnant of Israel, is the completed work of Jesus Christ, bringing together the one new man through the saving power. Of Christ, yet still Israel is still there. There is renewed promises of Israel's future spiritual and physical restoration is seen through the second coming of Christ and the salvation of Israel, despite their rejection and unbelief. They're going to be broken. They're going to be restored. They're going to look to Him. Paul talks about this through Romans nine to eleven, that God's has said His steadfast love is so great that He can take unbelief and turn that into belief. That is astounding. Because he's done that with every one of us. He does that with every one of us. But we also see, the church doesn't get away with it. We also see God's righteous judgment, that part of chesed, poured out in Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira, they think they're lying to Peter. Wrong. They're lying to the Holy Spirit. And God strikes them dead. And they're dragged out. And it says there was great fear great fear in the church. People were really shaken to the core. You do not treat God lightly. I mean, that's a very Sinai experience. It's like at, at Sinai, we see, you know, Korah, and he's like, I can be a better leader than you, Moses. So they're like, okay, let's meet by the flagpole tomorrow at three. And then the ground opens up, and is swallowed out. It's like, That Ananias and Sapphira, it's a very similar parallel. It's like, oh, we can hold on to our money. We can lie. It's okay. God won't do anything. We're covered by grace. And look what happens. Don't take God lightly. And it's a wake-up call. And he doesn't do this wake-up call because he wants to kick the church. He loves his bride. He wants to clean his bride. He wants to be with his bride. But you can't do that because his righteous judgment, is paired. Now this is the, the kicker as we begin to close here. The loving kindness of God towards Israel is therefore wholly undeserved on Israel's part. Same with us. If Israel received the proper treatment for her stubborn refusal to walk in God's way, there would be no prospect for her of anything but destruction. Since God's demand for right action never wavers one whit. Strict however as the demands for righteousness are, The prophets were sure that God's yearnings for the people of his choice are stronger still. Now here is the great dilemma of the prophets and indeed the dilemma of us all today. Which comes first, mercy or justice? Which which comes first, mercy or justice? An 11th century Jewish commentator called Rashi said this. He said that God gave precedence the rule of mercy and joined it with the rule of justice. But this much is clear. When we try to estimate the depth and the persistence of God's loving kindness and mercy, we must first remember his passion for righteousness. His passion for righteousness is so strong that he could not be more insistent in his demand for it. But God's persistent love for his people is more insistent still. A theologian named Thomas Sney said this, the story of God's people throughout the centuries is that her waywardness has been so persistent that if even a remnant is to be preserved, God has had to show mercy more than anything else. It is important to realize that though the Hebrew chesed can be translated by loving kindness and mercy without doing violence to the context, yet we might must always beware lest we think that God is content with less than righteousness. Sometimes we can slip into that. There is no reference to any sentimental kindness and no suggestion of mercy apart from repentance. In any case where the Hebrew original is chesed. His demand for righteousness is insistent, and it is always at the maximum intensity. The loving kindness of God means that his mercy is greater even than that. The word stands for the wonder of his unfailing love for the people of his choice. And the solving of the problem of the relation between his righteousness and his loving kindness passes beyond human comprehension. I mean, this is the crux. This is the crux of the whole matter. The ultimate expression of God's chesed is through the finished and completed work of Jesus the Messiah, once given and free for all. If he hadn't come, we would be lost. And my challenge is, like when we, for you today, is when we encounter God, if you truly have encountered God, there must be transformation. Because you're encountering the author of this. The perfection of this. Every human that has ever lived but one falls below this and always messes it up. Jesus lived this perfectly. He passed every test. He was sinless. But when we encounter this, there must be transformation. Everybody in the the scriptures, everybody in this book who encountered this is transformed. Everybody is not perfect, but everybody that encounters this is transformed. This is who God is. This is his fabric. This is grace. And it's from Genesis to Revelation. God is a God of covenant, and he chooses, and he has a purpose for that. And he will not be derailed. He will not leave you, and he is constant. His mercy and his judgment is constant and righteous. Let's pray. Yes, heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We praise your name. We thank you for your chesed, for your steadfast love which is forever. Which is constant, which has no ulterior motives. It's not conditional. It's eternal, it's everlasting. It pays the ransom. Incomplete. It forgives. It seals. It is complete, perfect, heavenly love. And you extend that to us. We don't even deserve it. We break your word. We break your law. We do things we shouldn't. We think about things we shouldn't. We make a mockery of you at times. We hurt people. At times we're a terrible witness. Yet still, you just hold out your hand and you say, I love you. Experience my steadfast love. You can change. Come near to me. And I will come near to you. And this is free. This doesn't cost anything. But this completes, Lord. This is why we were created. To walk in unity, in union with you. And what was severed will be joined and repaired. And we thank you, Lord. And if there's anybody here right now who doesn't know you, Lord, may they cling to you. May they recognize and realize who you are and be transformed. And if there's people here that know you, but are struggling to make sense of you, maybe they have struggled or suffered hardships, and that can be difficult to go through that and still think that, Steadfast love endures forever. That you want what's best for me. And the only answer is Jesus. And I pray for those people who struggle, Lord, that they would be renewed. Clean them. Bring them to you, Lord. Bring all of us that we may stand before you one day, pure and spotless, looking at you face to face. Amen. Blessings as you go today. And we'll see you next week. (laughs) Yes. I have a question. Mm.
0: Do you think uh, God ever teaches us?